I'm going to read from Luke chapter 23, which says, starting in verse 44, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in, with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was a righteous man. Lord Jesus, would we see you this morning? How did we get to this moment where Jesus is saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, where he's breathing his last breath? Let me offer just a quick snapshot of those last 12 hours of Jesus' life, the events leading up to his death on the cross. Late at night, while Jesus is praying, he is betrayed by a close friend and apprentice of him, Judas. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. He hands him over to the religious leaders who have him arrested by Roman soldiers. Their aim is to kill Jesus. All 11 of Jesus' closest disciples abandon him in this moment when he is arrested. This means that the 12 closest apprentices, the ones that he spent the most time with, pouring his life into, fail him in this moment. Jesus' most zealous apprentice, Peter denies having anything to do with Jesus three times. He repudiates any association with Jesus. Jesus is falsely accused and beat by the religious leaders and their associates. Jesus is standing before the people of God. These are the ones who are supposed to represent God to his people and to the world. The people who are supposed to embody truth, love, grace, kindness. These are the people of God, and yet they fail in every way. Jesus will not sleep on this night. He is denied any sleep and is interrogated deep into the night. And when the morning comes, Jesus is brought before the Romans, and there he is falsely accused of leading a rebellion against the Roman Empire and being a false teacher by the religious leaders. In this moment, Jesus will face the representatives of justice in the civilized world, the Roman Empire. But justice will be denied. Jesus stands before Pilate. And Pilate actually doesn't even want to deal with this case at all. Jesus is further, interroga uh, further interrogated, peppered with questions by Herod as well. For Herod, Jesus is just a toy of entertainment. He'd always wanted to ask him questions, yet Jesus stands before him and says nothing. Meanwhile, as this is happening, the chief priests and teachers of the law are standing there vehemently accusing him, we're told in Luke 23. Over and over again, they declare that he is guilty, that he's a liar, that he is a false teacher, a rebel, that he wants to lead this insurrection, that he calls himself a king, that he says he's God's son, but really he's a deceiver. He's a false prophet. He misleads people. He is unfaithful to God. He is a drunk. Their shelter are meant to diminish, undermine, distort, destroy everything about Jesus' identity, his character, his worth. He is mocked and ridiculed by Herod and the soldiers who dress him in a scarlet robe while he stands in chains. He is spat on, punched in the face, and he is crowned with a painful crown of thorns. Jesus will be declared innocent by Pilate, but he is still punished 
Luke 23, 14 says, Pilate will say, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That punishment was to receive 40 lashings. His skin would have been torn to the point of near death. He was punished, but he was innocent. Pilate tried to release Jesus one more time, and yet Jesus would stand hearing the crowds begging to have him killed, to have him nailed to a cross instead of being set free. The crowd would yell louder, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus stood before the Roman justice system, this great symbol of human justice at the time, and he received injustice. Everything about Jesus' life indicated he was innocent. But instead of releasing him, Pilate surrendered to the voices begging for an unjust verdict. For Jesus, the shouts of those who hated him prevailed over their cry for truth, justice, peace. Humanity's justice system failed him. Pilate surrendered to the will of the people, and he was forced to carry the equivalent of his execution chair through the city that he loved and prayed for, for the people that he loved and prayed for. At around 9 a.m. in the morning, Jesus was stripped naked, and nails were driven through his hands and feet, nailing him to this wooden beam. Now, this wasn't done privately. This was done in the most public street at the entrance of the city for everyone to see. This was intentional. And before the cross would be lifted up, a plaque would be placed over your head. It would indicate whatever crime you had committed when you were crucified. In Jesus' case, it's a Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It was meant to mock him, just like the purple robe and crown of thorns were. The entire process of crucifixion was supposed to be a public spectacle. It was reserved for criminals of the worst kind, often for insurrectionists or rebels, murderers, thieves, people who had rebelled against the Romans. Crucifixion was a declaration, you're not worthy to live. You are low, you are despised, you are scum. And everyone who lived in the first century at this time would have understood and who lived in the Roman Empire would have known what crucifixion looked like, smelled like, the cries that they would hear. Death was excruciatingly slow. Those who were crucified didn't die from blood loss. They often died from suffocation, from being unable to hold themselves up as they were nailed to the cross. This was the worst way to be killed. And Jesus was lifted up with two other criminals next to him. And for three hours, the gospel writers would tell us, from 12 to 3, it was dark. Though it's the middle of the afternoon, it is dark. The criminals next to him mock him, said if he's really who he says he is, he should have saved himself and them too. Others who were standing there watching Jesus die mocked him, saying that'll teach him. And yet, as Jesus is on the cross, the gospel writers tell us a number of things that he cries out. One of the things Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus tells the repentant criminal, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
John tells us that Jesus cried out, I thirst. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John will tell us that Jesus looks at his mother and at one of his disciples and says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. There at the foot of the cross, Jesus is establishing a new community, a new family, not based on blood, but based on who has attached themselves to him. And we're told that Jesus declares it is finished. It is finished, he says. And Luke says that right before he breathes his last breath, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If we stood at the cross like Mary, Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Mary, Jesus' mother, the, the, some of the disciples, the women who had supported Jesus' ministry, who were all there, there is no way you and I would have concluded that this was a good moment, that this was in any way good. They didn't. They were in shock. Their whole worlds were falling apart. They were grieving. They saw it falling apart right before their eyes on this day. And yet something happened at the cross. It was happening. This was no ordinary death. His dying words are striking to me. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I surrender. God incarnate, Jesus, surrendered. And yet he didn't just surrender his life to God the Father. He surrendered himself to humanity. He surrendered himself to humanity. This was his willful choice Jesus had been telling his disciples that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he would be killed and on the third day raised to new life. He told them he would be crucified. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay, down, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. Why? Why does Jesus willingly take this path to the cross? It's because Jesus had identified with humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And his death is a natural consequence of identifying with humanity. The cross was the ultimate form of identification with us. John's thought in his book, The Cross of Christ, will write, I could never, I myself, oh, sorry, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could one worship a God who is immune to pain, he says. And he'll talk about how he has uh, looked at other uh, religious uh, systems. He talks about going to a Buddhist temple in different Asian countries and stood re respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, uh, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the, the world. He, you can look at other worldviews and, and see how does it deal with suffering? How does it deal with pain? You detach yourself from desire, say some worldviews. Desire is the problem. You actually need to extinguish desire. 
Others will say, actually, suffering and pain, there's no meaning to it whatsoever. It's just random, and everyone goes through it. Whatever meaning you give to it is what you've created for it, but there's nothing outside of that. There is no purpose in your suffering outside of surviving. But then Stott will say, but each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still the question mark against human suffering. And you and I have been working through that as we hear what's going on in our world. Not just in this past few months, but even in the past few years, many of us throughout our life, there's been that question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. It is the cross. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. P.T. Forsyth will say the cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The cross is the picture of how closely God will identify with us, that he will willingly suffer for us, that he knows what it is like to suffer. This is what makes him worthy of worship. He's not a God distant from our pain, unwilling to engage with it. He knows it deeply. He is deeply acquainted with grief. And he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered into our world. God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to identify with humanity so that he would suffer and die like them. We don't worship a distant God unable to understand us, understand the pain of our world, but one who divinely suffered for us and suffers with us. He gets your pain. He identifies with those who suffer, especially those who suffer unjustly. But why would he have to die and suffer? The most basic answer is sin. Sin. Hebrews 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Identifying with humanity ultimately meant dying for humanity. There's no forgiveness of sin without death. Now, we shy away from this word, sin. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've all sinned at some point, that we felt angst this guilt, discomfort in our conscience over something we've done or failed to do, we usually justify it and say, well, such and such sins more than I do. They're worse than I did. I'm not that bad relative to them. But at the end of the day, we have all sinned. And then when the Bible speaks of sin, it talks about three things. It refers to missing a mark. You're aiming for a bullseye. You miss the bullseye. You miss what God intended for you. It also refers to intentionally ignoring and breaking a relational boundary. You willfully rebelled against that boundary that God established for you. And it also refers to corrupting of something that, the corrupting of something that was originally meant for another purpose. You twisted what was meant for good and flourishing into something that served you and others. This is what the Bible refers to when it talks about sin. Theologian and priest Fleming Rutledge, she once wrote, 
Let us not trivialize sin or domesticate it. Sin is a man's essential illness. It is a condition we are all heir to. It is a demonic power that enslaves us and binds and prevents us from being either free or good. Sin will destroy our relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, with the world. Sin leads to a life apart from God. It leads to a life separate from the one who is the author and source of all life. And so sin leads to death. Sin and death are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. And Jesus came to deal with our fundamental illness. See, Jesus never sinned, though he was human. He was sinless. He never missed the mark. He never willfully rebelled against God's boundaries for life. He never twisted something that was meant for good and flourishing for himself. He never used his power for himself. Jesus fulfilled all that humanity was actually meant to be. He was blameless. Righteous is what that Roman centurion called Jesus as he breathed his last breath. He was rightly related to God, to others, to himself, and to the world, even on the cross as he dies. Paul, when reflecting on what happened in the cross, will say, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was righteous on the cross took on our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. This is exactly what the gospel says, that Jesus, because of Jesus, God the judge does not give us what we deserve. God is holy, and holiness by its nature can't stand in the presence of unholy sin. By his nature, though, God seeks to consume sin in a fire of purity. And when sin rejects God and the purpose that we were created for, the appropriate response to that and to sin's destructive effects is to remove it, to consume it. And yet, that is not what God does for us in Jesus. At least not in the way you would expect. Daryl Johnson will know at the cross the Holy One expressed holy indignation against sin, but expressed it on, not on us, on himself. In Jesus, the Holy One became one of us. Not only one of us, he became us. He not only became human, he became the representative human. Mercy. God himself took upon himself our sin, and then God himself put upon him the awful judgment we deserve. The holy God doesn't give me what I deserve. He does not give you what you deserve. He gives himself what we deserve. And what is it that we get then? Well, in Jesus' death, we are set free from the power of sin. You're no longer slaves to it, powerless to stop. You are set free from the presence of sin. It no longer dwells in you because Christ now dwells in you. You are set free from the pleasure of sin. We no longer enjoy the act of sinning. We are set free from the penalty of sin. In other words, we are set free from death. Because to be set free from sin is to be set free from death. Jesus fully identified with humanity in dying so that anyone who fully identified with him would be raised to a new life, a life that begins in the present. Jesus fully took on the consequences of sin so that anyone who surrendered to him would be set free from sin and released from death's grip and instead live rightly related to God, to others, to themselves, and to our world. 
This is why we ultimately call this day Good Friday. Why we can believe it is good despite it being the day that Jesus died. And so I want to conclude by asking just two questions. What area of your life is in need of the stamp of the cross? Of that reminder that God suffered for us. A reminder that he willingly laid aside his immunity to pain. There are areas of our lives where we have been grieving, perhaps maybe even feeling numb to, because of the pain we felt. Some of that is pain we experienced because someone's done something to us. Some of it is pain that we grieve over as we see other people suffering. What area of your life is in need of the stamp of the cross? That he willingly comes, doesn't avoid pain, but enters into it and lays down his life. Secondly, what do you need his forgiveness for? All of us have fallen short. All of us get it wrong on a daily basis. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you are here. We ask for you to do your work among us, that you would make us aware of those areas that you want to stamp the cross on, those situations in our life, the things that we've, situations we've been looking at, that we've been looking at as if you don't care about, not understanding what's going on, but you want us to see that you care so deeply. You've come, you came, and you suffered, that you understand the pain, and you are present among us in it. Would you show us those places, Lord? I also ask, Lord Jesus, that you, by your spirit, would make us aware of the things that you want to forgive us for. The sin where we've missed the mark. We were aiming for good, but we just missed it. The, the things that we intentionally rebelled against you and the things that we twisted for our own selfish benefit, things that were meant for the good of others, Lord, would you, by your spirit, make us aware of those things now? The cross declares his great love for you and I, for all of his creation, his refusal to be distant, 
demonstrates his commitment to you, that he would come and suffer for you on your behalf, that he understands your pain, that he deeply identifies with you, and that he is more than willing to forgive no matter the cost. At the communion